0: Well, country music legend Kenny Rogers has died. And the first song I remember hearing by him was Lucille. It's about a woman who'd had enough, sadly, of mothering. Sung from the point of view of her husband, the chorus goes, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with four hungry children and a crop in the field. I've had some bad times, lived through some sad times, but this time, you're hurting won't heal. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Can you hear the sarcasm in his voice? You picked a fine time, as if to say, of all the times that you could have left me, this time was the worst to leave me. Maybe you feel this way when you think about what you're living through at this time. Maybe you think the the timing of the pandemic could not have been worse, and you might be wondering why now and why me? Now, if that's not you, and we're all experiencing this in very different ways, then you probably know someone, maybe a family member, a friend who is feeling that way, or you at least know of someone who you could say is probably thinking this is the worst. I think of someone from our church who's been going through a hard time and how they told me how they'd shared it with a friend. Now, let me just tell you, this person is unusually grateful, even when their life has been hard. And their friend, rather than encourage them, responded with, Why? You have so much to be thankful for. How could you be so ungrateful? Well, I could tell that this comment really hurt coming from this trusted companion, because this person I'm talking about genuinely seeks to live out the command that we are to give thanks in all things. When you and I want to respond like Kenny Rogers Farmer with a sarcastic line like, you picked a fine time, we can choose to respond differently. We don't have to pretend that everything's okay when in reality it's not. But we can acknowledge the hardship and still thank God for his goodness. Do you believe that? Well, let me tell you about another farmer who lived in another place and another time who could have easily sung along with Kenny Rogers' farmer. Instead, when his crops failed, listen to what he said. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the field produces no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now these are the words of the prophet Habakkuk. And because the sovereign Lord was his strength, he could look at, at complete and total ruin without ignoring it. He could say, this is bad. He could admit without admit that without taking his eyes off God, who he knew would be saving him from, of all things, the ruin of his soul. So let me ask you a question that I've been thinking about. What does your belief about God say in the face of the suffering that we're seeing on a global scale? Pause and think about how you would answer that question. And listen to it once more. What does your belief about God say in the face of suffering that we're seeing on a global scale? It's a question that deserves some time and thought. And it's also one that the Bible can help us to answer. Did you know seven years before Christians were made scapegoats of the great fire in the city of Rome in 64 AD that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Christians living in Rome? And his reason for writing it was to remind them that no matter how bad things get, and they were about to get much worse, or how much evil people do, God's kindness is greater than it all. No matter how deep the pit is that we find ourselves in, God is reaching down to pull us out of it. So go in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of Romans, and you'll see there the word mercy in verse 32, and the words mercy on them all or mercy on everyone. See, the Bible is really the story of God. And the central theme in God's story is for people to give him glory for his mercy. So let's see how God's mercy shaped Paul's belief about God, and as a result, his outlook on suffering. See, his perspective was not just his own. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So his perspective is really the perspective of reality, seen from both the eternal as well as the earthly dimension. So as we look at Paul and what he has to say under the Spirit's inspiration, would you keep thinking about our question? Let me just ask you again. What does your belief about God say in the face of suffering that we're seeing in a global scale? Well, first, Paul believes that God knows and that we know in part. Another way to think about this is that God sees the whole of the moon and yet we see only its small, curved shape. Look at verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge! How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. Paul is astounded by God's bigness. He was a smart man, but he admits that he can never figure God out. Once he thought he could, now he knows he never will. Clouds and darkness are all around him, writes the writer of Psalm 97 of God. No wonder God asks in the book of Job, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Even Job, who walked with God, could not figure out the deep things of God. Job's suffering was great. And yet when he tried to answer the question, why and what for, he came up empty. God knew he did not. Second, Paul believes that God knows what he's doing, and so he doesn't need humans telling him what he should do. Look at verse 11, or look at chapter 11, for who knows the thoughts of God? Who knows enough to give him advice? At a time like this one, how many humans are telling God, I don't like the way you run the world. I think you should do it like this. And third, Paul believes that God doesn't owe anybody anything. And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back, we read in verse 35. This is why God could say to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. And it's why in the parable of the landowner in Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus is practically asking his listeners, who can say that God is not allowed to do what he chooses with what belongs to him? Or who can begrudge his generosity? Now remember who's reading what Paul is writing. That he wrote these words a few years before some of his readers would be turned into Roman candles. The Roman candle from which the popular firework supposedly gets its name was originally a method of torture. A mechanism in which Christians were set ablaze for the amusement of the Emperor Nero who blamed them for the great fire of the city of Rome. In the face of suffering like they had never known, Paul reminds them of who they worship. God not only knows all, but God knows what he is doing. And God can show mercy to whoever he wants to because he doesn't owe anybody anything. And this is why he can end with these words in verse 36. For from him and through him and for him Are all things to him be the glory forever? Amen. I hope you're still thinking about our question, which is what does your belief about God say in the face of the suffering that we're seeing on a global scale? I wonder how many of us have an image of God as being so powerful that all we can see sometimes is his fire and fury. Say, like in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy and her friends arrive at the Emerald Gate. Their image of this great Oz is distant. A code word is needed to get past the guardian at the gate. He's uninterested. The booming voice says to come back another time. So do we see God like that as all-powerful but not very kind? Can we relate In that story to Dorothy when she shook with fear in the presence of the so-called great and terrible Oz. Some of us have an image of God as being so kind that all we can see is someone who is goodness and light. And again, like in the story of the Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy's dog Toto pulls back the curtain, he's powerless, isn't he? Only a man operating a bunch of controls and saying through the loudspeaker, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Oz is unhelpful. Floating away in a hot air balloon while waving goodbye to those stranded below. Do you and I see God as all-loving, but not very powerful? Can we relate to Dorothy in the story when the wizard's speech turns out to be more impressive than his actions could possibly be? See this either or thinking that says God is either all powerful, but not kind, or thoroughly kind, but not totally powerful is so tempting in a time like this. Yet this is not the God that we see here in the Bible. So let me ask you one more time, what does your belief about God say in the face of the suffering that we're seeing On a global scale and as you think about your answer listen to how the great preacher John Piper sums up all that Paul says in these verses in Romans 11 beginning in verse 32 or 33 and going to the end of the chapter since God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are unfathomably deep all things are from him and through him therefore no one can give a gift to God so as to make him a debtor. And no one can give any counsel to God about how he should do things, which is why his ways and judgments are unsearchable and inscrutable to our finite minds, so that finally we should give all glory to God and be content with an utterly dependent, Christ-exalting happiness in God. My prayer for you and for me is that we might find that contentment of being utterly dependent on Christ-exalt and experiencing Christ-exalting happiness in God, even as we pray for our world and we think about the attitude that we can have in the midst of so much suffering. And so thank you for listening, and I want you to know, even if I don't know you, I'm praying with you and for you, for our world. And I encourage you to continue to keep your faith in Christ and in this great God who we've just talked about.